from from my not particularly informed understanding, the thought of the Cappadocians seems to sort of remind scholars of late Platonists and especially Plotinus. But aside from one possible echo of Plotinus that was found, I think, in Gregory of Nyssa by some scholars, no one can really say that any of these guys have read Plotinus. So do you think... A, that it's likely that they probably had read Plotinus, or maybe maybe they just encountered people talking about these ideas in their days of studying philosophy, right? Well, or, it's really hard to say, because technically speaking, technically speaking, Origen could have studied together with Plotinus, right, and Longinus, and all that sort of generation, the first generation of Neoplatonists, so to say, even though it's still contested in scholarship. I did a special episode presenting <laughs> all the different permutations of Ammonius to Ammonii, origin to origins, you know, and and I just said I don't know, man. The evidence is really confusing. If if we had a bit more of certain passages of Porphyry, we'd be able to say maybe, but we we just. Eh. But okay, whether origin. Let's let's put this in the. Let's take this out of that debate. Whether origin that we know, origin of uh, Alexandria or Caesarea, whatever you want to call him, studied with Plotinus or not, there is certainly an influence of, let's say, Alexandrian-style Platonism of the 3rd century in origin the Christian's writings. Like, he's deeply conversant with this tradition, even if he didn't study alongside Plotinus, right? So they could have imbibed this from just from origin, maybe. Absolutely, yeah. I think that there's some kind of generic threads and taxonomies that uh, enter culture, and they are used as um, rhetorical tropes, yeah, to express something that is commonly acknowledged as such. So, and in this case, uh, the idea of mysticism, as it found its most complete justification in Plotinus, was always in some ways associated with Plotinus. I mean, and I guess uh, the, the Cappadocians must have read Plotinus or Porphyry or some sort of like philosophical manual that exhibits that uh, sort of theological and philosophical stance, either by, again, by Plotinus or Porphyry or even Proclus, but they for sure must have known that. Right. So you referred tantalizingly to imagery, imagery of God being represented as hidden because he's surrounded by light to the point that humans can't bear to look at it, right? Which we find already in Philo of Alexandria and many other interesting writers. But you also mentioned darkness. And darkness as a trope in, let's say, this this Platonist style of uh, hands-on theological encounter. Or you can call it mysticism. Darkness doesn't feature. It's never about darkness. It's always about light. Or light that transcends light. In Plot- like a light that's so bright that it's not even light anymore. It's something higher than light. But you never get that, to my knowledge, imagery of darkness. But we get this divine darkness image. And I think maybe for the first time in Christian literature? Maybe not. Maybe it's maybe loads of people are trying this. So that's important, right? For the tradition of bringing in that image, just as an image, just as a powerful image of, you know, how do we express... God's nature, both as imminent beyond imminence, right? Like intimately connected with everything in creation and also completely transcendent and ontologically superior to 
the creation. How do we express that? One, I mean, using darkness as an image is a pretty, it's a bold move, but I like it, I guess. Well, I mean, uh, the darkness of this kind of ignorance and uh, the darkness uh, that is associated with anything that is uh, below or above the intellect, right, is a very powerful analogy or proportion. So traditionally, it was understood that whenever you kind of encounter some uh, cognitive gaps and uh, in kind of epistemological stumbling blocks, yeah, you may use this analogical reasoning without ultimately committing the error of uh, metavasis, right, without sort of crossing the boundary of right. discipline, right? So it's a legitimate kind of scientific uh, methodological tool. And in this case, as far as... Uh, Theology, first philosophy is concerned, that which ascends all the way to the origins and to that which is ineffable, right? We use multiple analogy. We think that of them to be co-proportional to the subject matter under consideration, yeah? In some ways, how can we explain uh, some foundational theological doctrine like of this uh, co-substantiality if we don't even know what the substance of god is right kind of yeah that's a problem so we use those analogies right sun light heat and all such things that in some ways help you grasp the subject right lay hold on the object of your inquiry, but not completely. Just giving you some hints, or at least by allowing you to construct your syllogism, your discourse, your kind of propositional thoughts so that it can be expressed and carried on by tradition and transmitted to your heirs and uh, generations ahead, something like that. And in this case, the analogy of light, sun, you know, so the uh, sun ray and the heat that it produces that in some ways uh, exemplifies the idea of uh, the trinity right in the idea of darkness that exemplifies that which cannot be known that which is super essential super being of some kind beyond being right that which cannot be grasped and spoken of that which is truly ineffable is perfectly expressed through this idea of uh, or analogy of darkness. You enter into this realm where things are no longer clear, no longer can be grasped immediately, but in this case, you must transcend your intellect and basically merge with that reality so as to become that reality. Yeah, you have to merge. With God, you have to become God. You have to fully incorporate your life into God's light. Anything that constitutes your own self and ego, including your own finite intellect, and even the infinite universal intellect, that which transcends the intellect. And that is precisely where you no longer are on the level of kind of uh, rational discourse and uh, thinking and the intellect, but you transcend that and you enter into this completely ineffable realm by unifying your being with 
the being of God, the Trinity, right? And I think this is the core of Christian mysticism. Again, in this case, it's mysticos not just because you're not supposed to talk about it that must be passed in silence, but because it cannot be talked about, because it cannot be described, it's ineffable, it cannot be conceived of because it's incomprehensible, because it must be passed in silence on that ground. You have taken us to my favorite place, the place where the social implementations of silence, the, that which must not be spoken, meet the philosophical necessity of silence, that which cannot be spoken, and they get all mixed up together. So we've been speaking generally about divine darkness, and I want to bring our conversation back to a less exalted place and talk about where do we find this idea? Is this Gregory of Nyssa primarily? Uh, In what writings do we come across this? I, I really yeah, want to I trace that. Is, yeah, the, the idea of this uh, divine ineffability is most clearly expressed in uh, Basel's Contrionomium, right? Uh, against Enomius and in Gregory of Nyssa's Contrionomius and in Basel's Orations and, hom and Homilies. So this is one of the generic, basically, ideas of all Capadocian thinkers, right, that they uh, shared in common. Uh, but again, most clearly stated in their uh, treatises uh, against their kind of philosophical and theological adversaries, uh, right. and Prometheus. So it is really hard to understand these guys if you want to take it down to this um, historical granular level without contextualizing them, I guess, within the just the really intense discussions and uh, debates that were going on and less edifyingly the mutual accusations of heresy and mutual anathemas being thrown back and forth and who's going to win the Arians or the Trinitarians this is a question in the fourth century and uh, it depends on who's emperor and you know stuff like that <laughs> So we yeah, have it's all uh, historically contextualized. I totally agree with that, and uh, like uh, th this wisdom, like you know, in all that, because we don't come uh, to some ideas randomly, but through a series of steps that challenges us, that creates some kind of significant cognitive gaps, and allows us to once be uh, become aware of the significance of that particular threat and be able to give it some theoretical justification and that's basically what happened uh, to the Calvadosians and what allowed them to fully explicate the theology which then became a classical orthodox theology I guess through this particular very concrete historical circumstance yeah now when I think of the term mysticism we have that we have something you might call mystical theory or theology or you know uh, approaches to trying to put into words the the whole subject matter which can't be put into words but it's this endless thing that mystical writers keep trying to do but we also have the question of what you might call practical mysticism uh, you know way of life and in this case ascesis is probably very important right because ascesis you know the 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 denial of bodily pleasures, separation from the body, the flesh, I should say, in the Christian context, from the, the sarks, the flesh, um, is not done because it's cool. It's done as a tool 
to get you to a state, right? And it seems to me that people, especially people who are engaging in extreme asceticism, which I guess none of none of our Cappadocians are really doing, but they're surrounded by a whole milieu where increasingly people are doing really, really hardcore stuff to their bodies, in, often publicly, right? Or often if they go off into the wilderness, the public will come to them to sort of watch them do it, you know? So there's this culture of ascesis, and it's some of it's like proper extreme stuff. What well, do, I would say that's... I was going I'm to say, sorry for interrupting. I just wanted to just kind of make one a uh, little clarification. That uh, first, uh, it was mainly the stoic kind of idea of purging your mind of all the corrupted thoughts. So it was more like this noetic kind of exercise, right? Right. When you modify your intellect when you purge your intellect your inner life of everything that can disturb you that can create this kind of like you know turbulence in your life right but that is not truly bodily and then later there are all those manifestations of this extreme ascesis in the sense of doing harm to the body right which did not really belong to the original thing like you know when you think of evagrius and all the uh you know ascetics of the philokalia tradition right. you don't really find that much of this kind of like bodily exercise as more like a non-eating exercise i'm so sorry for interrupting you no it's good apologize. please so there's i guess it's safe to say that there's multiple traditions going on in asceticism in the eastern roman world i mean we've seen with our syriac tradition with paul Pasquesi that you know these guys were out in some unlike the cappadocian fathers a lot of these guys were out in the mountains a lot of these guys couldn't read. A lot of these guys were experimental, you know. They were trying stuff out and just kind of going a little bit crazy, I think, in the wilderness. You're not going to find that kind of behavior maybe among cultivated East Roman gentry, no matter how devoted they are to their path. And, you know, they're going to pursue maybe something more like the ideal of, of all the philosophical schools, which is not being the slave to your passions at all, but still not like, cutting yourself or whipping yourself or starving yourself or stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, like for Evagrius, for instance, all uh, those corrupted logi are modeled, uh, I guess, upon uh, the, the more uh, original kind of late Stoic thoughts. And in Stoicism, let's say when you read like uh, Epictetus, right, that would be a good example, right? Mm -hmm. They will say that, well, I mean, the thing is that when we live in this world, we are part of this world, yeah? We are part of nature. And nature is fully rational because it's permeated uh, by the uh, kind of seeds of rationality, those yeah. logists, pragmatici, right? Sown by God, the pneuma. And the thing is that in that sense, everything is rational and everything is fully determined because anything that happens is framed into some existential causal chain. Yeah. And in that case, the question of, okay, but then... Like, what about human agency and human sort of uh, choice? Can we make a choice about things? Well, they would say that, well, in some ways, yes, but not about things that constitute uh, 
you as part of this uh, natural makeup, right? That is fully determined. So nothing's up to you. Your body, your origin, your, you know, like uh, individual features, uh, not even your reputation are based on the offices that you held in the past, right? But only your internal states, i.e. attitudes and judgments, and in some ways, your own internal impulse that you can sort of control so as to be aware of it, right? So as to be aware of its own extent. So now, if you make right judgments and form appropriate attitudes, you become a free human being. You exercise your deliberation and attain the state of happiness, but if you fail, you become miserable, yes? And you become completely deprived of this ataraxia and apatheia. So what can be done in this case? Well, in this case, your intellect must be healed. It must be purged of all the corrupted logi. Now, Evagrius perceives and vacation uh, after him, perceive those logi as sins, demonically inspired that enter your brain and make you sort of chase after the wing and make you desire things that are unattainable <laughs> and aiming to make you absolutely miserable and the whole ascetic endeavor in this case the whole exercise concerns your own intellectual noetic self and purging your self of all the corrupted fallacious thoughts and it did not originally entail anything bodily anything of that sort of extreme like wearing chains kind of mimicking christ on the cross being crucified like you know and all that stuff but eventually it became like that so but it was a different kind of sort of sort of modality of asceticism so to say right yeah. which was not the original kind of early church uh, asceticism which was a lot more intellectual right and it sounds like you have to is it sorry to interrupt is it safe to say that that's more the kind of asceticism that the cappadocians are into the more early church focused on epistemological purification rather than let's say purification from demons that are infesting your body in some literal i would say that if we uh, look at basel and his uh, like um sort of writings on spirituality right surprisingly you will not see any of such things right he is more uh, concerned with this like uh, community based on some practice which is not as much uh, intellectually leaning as ethically leaning right doing right things being nice being virtuous so it's not really mystical in that sense you don't find uh, like you know a lot of traces of that kind of evagrian mysticism part of it might be because of course they were they knew about evagrius and of course they knew about um some possible ramifications of following that same 
theory and the same mindset and sort of like uh, you don't find in other words uh, the elements or at least I couldn't find the elements of that kind of asceticism in Cappadocian thought but you might find it again you know I confess my stupidity I know I mean I only have like some partial knowledge of uh, the Cappadocian fathers right so like you know I try to read most of them but uh, well uh, I, I should say that my knowledge is limited and possibly you may find something that will be along those lines of Evagrian mysticism, so to say. But it's interesting because it, it seems that through the Philokalia, these guys have sort of curated Evagrius for orthodoxy going forward, right? Just like they've done with Origen to some degree. They've, they've created like a curated selection of what we can get away with, what we think is going to fly, whatever, however they were thinking about it. Well, in some ways, this is a very good point, Earl, because, you know, here's the core of this uh, philokalic uh, tradition of uh, the philokalia of Origen, that anytime you read anything in the Gospels or, you know, in, in the Scriptures, so to say, you know, you should not take them immediately for their face value, that they're always kind of Layers, right? One is, let's say, um, kind of immediate historical, literal, bodily, right? Another one is kind of spiritual, ethical, and things like that. And then there's just another one that is mystical, ineffable, inconceivable, incomprehensible. And his idea that the scripture itself gives you the signs of how to proceed, right? When you experience all those stumbling blocks, offenses, and impossibilities, you must readjust the level of analysis and move to that which is truly mystical. Okay, and think of it mystically. And in that sense, yes, I think we can also re-exegete uh, Evagrius. We can perhaps also claim that, well, certain things might be mistaken, certain things might be like uh, even theoretical, but there's some good core, and if it's interpreted in its proper way, then it will give you the right path to God and to like true spiritual life. Something along those lines, I would think it's a very, very deep what you said. So you think what you're describing just now would be the approach of the Cappadocians in bringing Evagrius in? And is it also the, your approach as a modern day uh, Orthodox thinker? Well, yeah, I would say so, because like, you know, when you, let's say, preach, deliver your homily, Right? Yeah. Uh, in some ways, you encounter things that are quite self explanatory, right? And you have to give them, like, you know, this kind of uh, historical contextualization because they have history. And then, meantime, it has moral entailments. But even more so, there are certain things that are just odd. Yeah, especially yeah. when you read this uncensored, unedited uh, version in, in the original language, let's say Greek or Syriac or, you know, I don't know, Aramaic. Wow, what is going on there? You immediately see those stumbling blocks and offenses and impossibilities, right? And you immediately kind of think, okay, so, but now you must readjust. And now you must speak not in the way you normally speak by kind of telling a story, by 
you know, kind of given some narrative, uh, utilizing mythos, uh, story, right? And not by just simply sort of trying to draw all the possible, like, ramifications as far as the Christian ethos is concerned. What does this story tell us? Well, it tells us this and this and this, right? In the sense of how we must behave, how we must adjust our ethos, right? But in some ways, you see things that are not just about history or about morality or about like, you know, that sort of uh, ethical spirituality, but things that are truly ineffable, truly inconceivable. And what can you do with such things? And that is precisely when you as a preacher uh, utilize your, I mean, I guess, unique gift, if you have such, or you kind of confess your stupidity and ignorance, as I do. And I just say that, like, you know, this is something that transcends uh, limits of my uh, finite intellect. And in this case, I I must pass it in silence. I must just shut up and not say anything. Yeah. Something along this line. Yeah. That reminds me that, you know, when I interviewed a few years ago, uh, Henny Fiske Haig, who's written a very important book on apophaticism in Clement, she said, you know, one of the characteristics of the Orthodox tradition is that although we have orthodoxy, there's also this prevailing ethos. And I, I wonder what you think of this because you obviously are living in the Orthodox tradition every day. There's this ethos that although we have Orthodoxy, we also don't, you can never write the final story because God, basically because God is infinite to take Nyssa's, this very important idea from Nyssa, like God is infinite. What are the implications of that? Because God is infinite, not meaning really, really big, but meaning having no boundaries, having no measure, no way to measure him. You will never be able to put it into words. So there's this open-ended interpretational space vis-a-vis dogma as well, right? Where although you have strong dogmas, you also have this opening to, we don't have all the answers. There's this space for open-endedness. Does that sort of ring a bell to you? Yes, absolutely. The idea is that, yes, since God is infinite, uh, you can still uh, in some ways proceed and uh, carry on your inquiry through the perhaps the description of number, right? The Pythagoreans would say that, right? Uh, I mean, infinite is not absolutely unknowable. There's still kind of something that can be grasped through the imposition of limits and number. And a lot of things in this world, apart from God, yeah, contain the infinite. Let's say we live in the continuum, and that which is continuous is divisible into divisibles, i.e. divisible infinitely. And, you know, so we encounter the infinite right away when we study physics, right? But when we study God, it's a different kind of, uh, (laughs) I guess, uh, (laughs) infinity and a different kind of um, infinite that is at stake. And uh, yes, I mean, in some ways, we are not totally deprived. And yet, in order for us to truly know God, we must undertake this infinite journey, right, of which Gregory of Nyssa speaks. But still, even there, we perhaps won't be able to know God because, again, 
it's not about knowledge, it's about being and way of life, it's about existence, it's about truly merging with God without being able to truly know God. But yet we make that sort of infinite stretch and we aim to get to know God. But there's always this kind of challenge of which the Gnostics spoke when they introduced divine Sophia and sort of her uh, sort of a transgressive move, which was she desired to know the ineffable God, but this ineffable God cannot be known because God is ineffable. So, in out of that desire, the uh, the result was not uh, uh, delivery and beauty, but miscourage. Father Sergei Trostiansky, stay like that space between the effable and the ineffable and stay esoteric. <laughs> um, Thank you, Earl. Uh, I will try to do that. Yeah, I will try to follow your path. And I, I, I think you're going to have to. I think there's no way, no way around it from what you've, you've been talking about. As someone who clearly is interested in the Cappadocian fathers and Cappadocian sister for their theological insights, their historical position, and so on and so forth, you're also someone who's invested in them on the level of, these are my teachers, these are my spiritual ancestors, you know. And so um, by that alone, I think you have no choice but to stay esoteric because these guys stay esoteric, right? They um, remind us why you have to stay esoteric. Well, that's true, you know, and um, uh, what comes to mind immediately is um, this classical tradition, right? Plato, Aristotle, well, the meaning of esoteric, again, it needs to be qualified. What do you mean by that? One thing Aristotle would say that exoteric is that which concerns your, you know, the classroom when you teach and sort of exhibit some commonly acknowledged doctrine. But you become esoteric when you develop some new threads uh, in your own sort of little caucus limited by your own peer group, right? right? So, and in case we are always, we are esoteric now, right? Indeed. You know, you and I. Because we try to explore that something that is basically still uh, very puzzling and very perplexing and uh, kind of. But then there's another meaning of exoteric, which is some hidden mystery. And I think that is also something that uh, can be perhaps experienced, but very individually. I, I don't think it ever gets to the uh, level of uh, discourse or intellectual exchange, right? And I guess that kind of esoteric experience is basically, uh, you know, it's a meaningful thing for any Christian, devout, uh, faithful sort of uh, human being, right? To have that experience that cannot be and must not be shared with anyone. So something meaningful. Thank you, Earl. Thank you. Thank you.